Hey, thanks for joining us today. We're going to carry on in our study on the book of Ezekiel. And today we're talking actually about how God judges the nations in the book of Ezekiel. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28 verses 25 and 26. And if you're not sure as to where that is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Please don't be ashamed to use it. And you know what? If there's anyone out there that's checking this out, if you don't have a Bible that you understand, why don't you just go ahead and contact us and we'll make sure that we get one into your hands for you. But in the meantime, follow along with me. Anybody who has one handy, Ezekiel 28, verses 25-26, here's what it says. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will, pr I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in the safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, as we're checking out the history of some of the stuff taking place here, Jesus, that we would find an understanding of how this applies to our lives today in terms of how you vindicate your people. And so, Lord God, as we look into your word, may we have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So, Ezekiel, we're just going to dive right in because there's so much to cover here. Uh, Ezekiel is incredibly serious about both his warnings and his encouragements to the Judeans, those who are from Judah. Uh, specifically, those who are from Judah who are exiles in Babylon. These were people who had received the grace of God in a very special way. Now, we don't often think of exile as, as something being experienced in terms of an act of grace. But one of the things we have to understand here is that their friends and their family members that were still back in Jerusalem, they were going to be consumed by God's punishment to Jerusalem at that point. And so there is a grace being offered here in that while in exile, they're not the ones who are going to experience the punishment within Jerusalem. And so there's the grace involved. But whoever had family and friends that were still in Jerusalem were certainly going to come under that punishment. The exiles were to fear the Lord and recognize what was happening was not a result of Nebuchadnezzar's power, but it was actually a result of God's displeasure towards his adulterous people. And remember, if, uh, if you think of it this way, actually, that anytime there's idolatry, God treats it as adultery. Idolatry gets treated as adultery. In other words, um, as the bride of Christ, if there are things that are in our lives that we treat as being uh, above God in this relationship that we have with Him, that's idolatry. But you can well imagine that if we're choosing something above God, then that's adultery within our relationship with the bridegroom, right? And so just like in Isaiah 13 to 23 or Jeremiah 46 to 51, Ezekiel pronounces God's judgment on the nations that are surrounding him. And you may ask yourself, okay, but what about Abraham's descendants? Well, the prophet proclaimed that the Lord would reassemble his people in the promised land. God's word of correction was never his final word to the remnant. In other words, correction wasn't the only thing that was taking place 
Correction, again, remembering the biblical understanding of correction was that this idea that that it was going to move us towards God's direction, whatever it is that God was doing in our lives. And that it wasn't the only thing God was talking about because there was this promise to be able to be restored as His people. And so God's word of correction was never the final word to the remnant. Ezekiel prophesied specifically against those nations whom God had used as instruments in His wrath against Judah and Jerusalem. That's... um, and so we, we talk about that in this particular message, chapters 25 to 32. But these chapters serve as kind of this break point between the prophet's message to Judah and those who are in exile of God's coming judgment or, or discipline, punishment on Israel for being uh, unfaithful to God. And then you have this latter half of the book of Ezekiel, which talks about God's promise and ability to be able to restore Israel fully. So in the middle here, we have this language that goes out to all the nations that would experience God's wrath because of their treatment of His chosen people, the Jews, Judah, the Israelites. So in time, in time, God would exercise judgment upon the idolatry and the rebellion of the nations, many of whom had rejoiced at the destruction of the city of David. And so Ezekiel speaks about the wickedness of the surrounding nations, including the nation of Ammon, or Moab, and Edom, and Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. And these nations have mocked both God and the Judeans, and God announces His judgment on all of them. And so you might be wondering, like, what specifically were these different nations doing? Like, what was, the, what was the ultimate mocking looking like? Well, Tyre specifically, and there's a lot of attention given to Tyre, so we're going to spend some time on Tyre in, in shortly, but pride was this sin of Tyre. And Tyre would say of itself, I am a god. There was all the nations kind of gloating over Israel rather than seeing God's actions as discipline. Ammon and Moab see it as a sign that God has forgotten them. And so the idea that God would have left his own covenant relationship with Israel, when we know that when God enters into covenant, God is not the one who leaves that covenant. He's the one who reestablishes it. And so in general, there was a treating uh, of God's people poorly. Self-reliance, Egypt considers themselves invincible. They saw the Nile River as this never-ending supply of sustenance. And clearly by this point, they had forgotten what took place when the Israelites had left, uh, left Egypt. And then there's this general sense of idolatry. They trusted their own gods instead of trusting the one true God. And so that was kind of the, the stuff that was taking place all in and around Judah. And so all the nations that they mention, they kind of go around all the borders of Judah. And, and, and when you look at this on a map, uh, what you see is this literal surrounding of Judah from these different nations. Now, one nation particularly gets a lot of attention here, and that's that nation of Tyre. So, you know, um, there is this rebuke of Tyre. Uh, there is this language that God is going to deal with Tyre, Tyre quite harshly. So I kind of titled this one Flat Tire. I know, lame, but that's okay. Uh, There are several aspects to the prophecy against Tyre that deserve attention and some scrutiny. Uh, The prophet predicted that many nations are going to come against Tyre. 
and the inhabitants of the villages and the fields of Tyre would be slain. Nebuchadnezzar would build a siege mound against the city. The city would be broken down to stones, timber, and soil and would be thrown into the midst of the water. And the city would become a place for spreading nets. And the city would never be rebuilt. Now, in chronological order, the siege that Nebuchadnezzar took, of Nebuchadnezzar took place within a few months of Ezekiel's prophecy. As a matter of fact, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, he quotes the records of the Phoenicians and he says, and, and the Phoenicians are the people of Tyre, of Sidon, and there's a few other city-states within that as well. And it states that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre, listen to this, for 13 years in the days of Ithobal, their king. Now, the historical record, right when you're looking at it, it suggests that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed uh, the mainland city, but the siege of the island probably ended in some kind of normal submission of the city in which Tyre surrendered without receiving a hostile army within her walls. Now, the city of Tyre was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, who did a lot of damage to the mainland, as Ezekiel predicted. But the island state was pretty much unaffected. And so at this point in the discussion, there are certain skeptics that would say, see Ezekiel's prophecy as not having been fulfilled. It was a failed um, prophecy, a failed prediction. But if you actually look a little closer to the text, now this is where some of textual criticism comes in. It is a form of being able to look at the text of Scripture and be able to understand within the text of Scripture where... Uh, there needs to be some explanation or some understanding so that you can recognize that there's no actual discrepancy or contradictions here. So in a closer look at the text, uh, the interpretation that Ezekiel's uh, prediction did not come true is flawed. And, and here's why. Ezekiel begins his prophecy with many nations will come against Tyre. And that there are going to be many nations that are involved in the flattening of Tyre. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar comes along with Babylon and just completely wipes out Tyre, that's where you could say that the prophecy didn't come true because there wasn't the many nations. And if you want the prophecy to come true, then you cannot have Nebuchadnezzar be the only one to have opportunity to siege and attack Tyre. Now, in addition to that, when we actually look into the text itself, um, the many nations will come against Tyre, that's chapter 26, verse 3. And then he named Nebuchadnezzar and stated that he would build a siege mound, he would slay with sword, and he would do numerous other things. That's chapter 26, verse 7 to 11. But then in verse 12 of chapter 26, that pronoun of he shifts, and it moves away from the singular to the plural. It moves from he to they. And in this verse, in chapter 26, verse 12, uh, Ezekiel predicts that they will lay the stones and building material of Tyre in the midst of the waters. The shift of pronouns is key, and it's critical to this. We can't ignore this, and we can't be... Well, we can't be lazy in our, in our attempts to understand Scripture. The shift in pronouns has incredible significance since it shifts the subject of the action from Nebuchadnezzar, which is the he in that pronoun, back over to the many nations, which is the they. And so you can see that there's a significant difference there. Skeptics fail to see that shift, and they mistakenly apply the utter destruction of Tyre to Nebuchadnezzar. But regarding the prophecy of Tyre, 
as it relates to Nebuchadnezzar's activity, there's at least two things that are taking place under Nebuchadnezzar. One would be that siege mound, and the other one would be the slaying of the inhabitants in the field, which would be that, uh, that inland city. Now, regarding the prediction that many nations would come against Tyre, the historical record surrounding this cannot be refuted. It reports such turmoil and war that Ezekiel's prophecy actually looks like a mild understatement to the facts. So, for example, Nebuchadnezzar, he attacks the city for a, uh, of the city. It's a great period of depression, is what is said. It plagued the city to which was assimilated into the Persian Empire in about 538 BC. In 392, Tyre was involved in a war which arose between the Persians and Evagoras of Cyprus in which the king of Egypt took Tyre by assault. Sixty years later, in 332, Alexander the Great crushed, absolutely decimated Tyre. Egypt conquered and subjugated Tyre until about 315 BC, when Antognus of Syria besieged Tyre for 15 months and captured it. So you can see, like, like over and over and over again, you're seeing Tyre being ripped apart by many, by they, many nations will come against them. So it was not just singular in terms of Nebuchadnezzar bringing down the downfall of Tyre. It is actually the multiple nations coming against Tyre and bringing about its destruction. So Ezekiel's prophecy about many nations remains as a historical reality that just can't be dismissed. It's true. Now, the theme of God's judgment against foreign nations who celebrated the devastation of Judah and Jerusalem might have provided the background or a general insight of thought for the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, his second letter to the Thessalonians. They were a church that had been under intense persecution uh, since the beginning of the gospel, and, and uh, among them and their proponents may have rejoiced in making them suffer. And so we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Acts chapter 17. But Paul can, commends the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10. He, he commends their endurance amongst, in amidst the afflictions that they were experiencing. He says it this way. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted as worthy among the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just, and He will pay back, pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give grief to you who are troubled. Oh, sorry, give relief to you who are troubled as well as to us. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from His glorious might. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all who believe. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. In Ezekiel 28, 11-19, it speaks very strongly against the king of Tyre. Um, and in the prophet's day, rebuking a king, uh, they were rebuking this king for his insatiable pride and greed. Now, some depictions of Ezekiel 28, 11-19 seems to speak about something more than a human king. And this is where it becomes important for us to say, you know what, we're going to take a breath here and we're going to zero in a little bit on this. So if we understand that chapters 25 to 32 are about 
judgment on the nations around them. We take a look at the kingdom of Tyre because there is just this incredibly strong emphasis about Tyre. And in this judgment against this king, he seems like there's more to it than this. An earthly king wouldn't claim to be in Eden, for example. To be the anointed cherub who covers. To be on a holy mountain of God. Most, most biblical scholars believe that Ezekiel 28, 11-19 serves as this dual prophecy. Dual in the sense that it compares the pride of the king of Tyre to the fall of Satan, to the fall of Lucifer, and, and comparing it to the pride that Lucifer had experienced. So before his fall, beautiful is the way that Lucifer is described. Ezekiel 28, 12-13, right? He was perhaps the most beautiful and powerful of all the angels. The phrase, this um, guardian cherub, might show that Satan was the angel who guarded God's presence, because we know that there were cherubs that did this. And this pride led to Satan's fall. Satan took pride in himself, thinking that he himself was responsible for his own glory, for his exalted status. Satan's rebellion resulted in Satan being cast from God's presence and will end in God tossing Satan into the lake of fire for all eternity. And that takes us all the way to Revelation 20, verse 10. Now, when we're looking at this comparison, like first off, the thing that's important for us to understand is that there is this language of description of what Satan was like before the fall. And then we have, like Satan, this human king of Tyre was prideful. And so essentially what he's saying is, listen, you are prideful, and it's a lot like this cherub that we referred to originally in his name was Lucifer, who became Satan in his fall. And like Satan, the human king of Tyre was prideful. Rather than recognize God's sovereignty, the king of Tyre attributed Tyre's riches to its own merits, its own efforts, its own wisdom, its own strength. The king of Tyre took advantage of other nations, expanding Tyre's own wealth at the expense of others. Now, here's where it becomes really important to understand the economy of the day. You see, you had uh, Tyre, which was this uh, coastal city, uh, tremendous trade and, and, and market there. So they were, they were quite affluent as a city. But the comparative would have been Jerusalem. Uh, it would have been uh, this land version of this immense market and wealthy and all that kind of stuff. So they were sort of in a way, um, in, in terms of economy, competing nations. You would have had, through land trade, Israel would have been the gateway to everything else. And so people would come in there, the markets would be there, and, and there would be an awful lot of trade making Jerusalem quite wealthy. Judah, of course, by expansion of that, would have been a wealthy state. Tyre was in a similar boat, only they were a coastal city. And so when Jerusalem falls, Tyre rises. And so for the king of Tyre to reflect on what's going on in Judah and seeing that Jerusalem falls, that Judah falls, they would have taken a great deal of pleasure in that. And this is something that's offensive to God, very offensive to God. Now back to the idea of the comparative towards between the king of Tyre and Satan. Uh, but just as Satan's pride led to his fall and will eventually lead to his final destruction, the city of Tyre loses its wealth, its power, its status because of its pride and its sin against Israel. And so God judges Tyre very harshly. 
Many of Ezekiel's prophecies in these chapters are employed by writers of the New Testament to detail specific themes that God, of God's retribution on His enemies. So, for example, God's wrath on those who exalt themselves over His people, Ezekiel 27 verse 22, the prophet notes that Sheba was one of Tyre's trading partners, giving the city gold, the best of all spices, and all kinds of precious stone for your merchandise. Now, the Apostle John noted that wealth characterized the success of Babylon, the anti-God world system, such that Babylon, when Babylon was destroyed, the merchants of the world mourned over her loss in Revelation 18, verse 12. And just as the world mourned over the loss of Tyre and all her abundance in Ezekiel 27, 30, John wrote that those who watch the Lord's wrath on Babylon would likewise lament. And here's what that lament looks like in, in Revelation 18, 16 to 17. And cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all the earth they're living from the sea, will stand far off. Ezekiel understood not only Tyre's financial institution is grievous to the Lord, but also her arrogant leader. Ezekiel confronts the ruler of Tyre saying, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is Ezekiel 28 verse 2, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on a throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God though you think you are as wise as a god. And the Apostle Paul noted that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, would be like the ruler of Tyre. The idea that, that they're not a god, but they think that they are as wise as a god, and they would call themselves a god. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, talking about the lawless one, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called god or is worshipped so that he sets himself in God's temple, proclaiming to be himself God. Paul went on to note that in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by slender of his coming, the prophet lamented for the king of Egypt, declaring him in the word of the Lord in Ezekiel 32 verse 7. So there's this, Again, this, this language of, of coming against the nations. He says, When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. The same images are employed by Jesus and the Apostle John to describe God's final judgment. You find that in Matthew 24, Mark 10, Luke 21, Revelation 6, 8, Isaiah 13, Joel 2, and Joel 3. And then in Ezekiel 26 and in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel describes the fall of Tyre and Sidon, respectively. Now, it's noteworthy to say that Jesus also spoke of the downfall of these cities. But he said that the final judgment would be better for them and worse for towns like Bethsaida and Chorazin. That the latter had rejected not the prophets of Israel, but one greater, the Messiah himself. And so the idea here is that Tyre and Sidon had rejected the prophets, but Bethsaida and Chorazin 
have rejected the Messiah himself. This is important stuff. We read that in Matthew chapter 11. So we have, on one hand, we have the language of God's wrath on those who will exalt themselves above His people. And so He's going to take note of this, and He's going to deal with these people. But then on top of that, so He's not just going to set Himself against the people who put themselves against or above the Lord's people, but God's going to vindicate His people. And I would suggest to you that He vindicates us people ultimately in Jesus. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, Ezekiel describes the day of the Lord's vengeance upon the nation, saying that the day was near. And these words echo in Jesus' teaching about the nearness of the day of the Lord and in the necessity for His disciples to be watchful. In Psalm 135, verses 5 to 14, there is this description um, of an understanding of what it's like when God has vindicated His people in in the past, in, in the Old Testament. It says, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever He pleases, that whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. He makes the clouds rise from ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. He struck down the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn of the people and animals. He sent His signs and wonders into your midst, Egypt, like against Pharaoh and his servants. He struck down many nations, killed many mighty kings, Sihon, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of the Bashan, and the kings of Canaan. He gave their lands as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people of Israel. Your name, Lord, endures forever. Your renown, Lord, through all the generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And Paul likewise describes the return of the Lord, emphasizing the vindication and hope it would bring both the dead and the living in Christ when he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so what we find here is that you have God's people and everything that they held value to, Jerusalem, Judah, the very identity of the people had been destroyed. And the surrounding nations had mocked them for it. So rather than seeing God disciplining them, uh, Ammon and Moab specifically, they saw this as God leaving them, which is a character assassination on God because God doesn't leave His people. God keeps His covenant. And when His people betray their covenant relationship, God corrects the people. And so in correcting the people, they see this as something that says God's no longer in their midst. They mock Him, and God brings judgment against them. And specifically with Tyre, He compares it to the fall of Satan, and He brings us all the way over into the end of days saying, Ultimately, not only will God restore or did restore His people back to the land of Israel, because we saw that in 1948, but we also see that the ultimate vindication of His people is that when we get to join the Lord in the air, in His coming, our hope, our present hope, is in that future truth. God vindicates His people, and He makes His name known and glorified. Now, that's an amen thing if I ever heard one. Let's pray together. 
Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together looking into your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to sink deeper into the truths that we find as you deal with your people, as you deal with other nations and draw people towards you in miraculous ways. And I thank you, Lord, that in the end, not only do you win, but you vindicate your people and you allow us to have this eternal glory with you in heaven. I thank you so much for your work on the cross and for, Lord, restoring us to where you desire us to be, which is walking with you in perfect union. Thank you. Amen.